Author, Jewish tradition says Ezra wrote it or compiled it from various sources. Date, between 460 to 430 BC. Outline dash. I First Chronicles 1 1 to 9 44, The Genealogies. 2. First Chronicles 10 1 to 29 30, The Rule and Death of King David. 3. Second Chronicles 1 1 to 9 31, The Rule and Death of King Solomon. 4. Second Chronicles 10 1 to 36 23, The Division of the Kingdom to the Exile. Key Theme Slash Events Dash. The book does a good job on a variety of comparison and contrasts between 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. The chart on page 262 is very helpful in seeing these. But there are a few things I want to dig into a bit more within these two books. A. The Tribe of Judah. We need to go back to Genesis. Out of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob slash Israel, came the twelve tribes of Israel. It was Judah's idea in Genesis 37 to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, rather than kill him. In Genesis 38, we learn about his sin. We learn a great deal about Judah, the man, in Genesis 44, which occurred many years later. Though he wanted to get rid of his brother Joseph just as much as the rest of his brothers, years later, upon going to Egypt and believing his brother Benjamin was going to die, he stepped forward and was willing to sacrifice himself on behalf of his brother. Application, this is a perfect picture of what Jesus came to do in our place. 1 Chronicles 5 2 states that Judah became a leader, which is evident in his interaction with his brother Joseph in Genesis 44. Later in Genesis 49, we read Jacob's blessing upon each of his children. We read this in verses 8-12, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. These verses state there will be royalty descended from him. The phrase, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, is a reference to descendants who will rule. This refers to the kingly line that would eventually come from Judah the person and the tribe. David was a descendant of Judah, and they were loyal to him when he became king, 1 Kings 12:20. There is also a statement in Hosea 11:12 that says Judah rules with God. We know Judah was the main tribe in the southern kingdom and retained the kingly line from David. If you have studied the Bible, then you know that Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. More below in the connection to the Messiah and the New Testament. B. The Temple. I gave an overview of the Temple in class 8, when we studied the book of 1 Kings. I'm not going to reiterate what I have written, but as the book notes, one focus of 1 and 2 Chronicles is the Temple. Why? Because before the invasion of the Babylonians, it was the central structure in Judah. Even though the people perverted the worship of the Lord and put things in there that were contrary to the worship of YHWH, God still ordained that the temple, prior to the captivity, was where He was going to dwell above the Ark of the Covenant. I cover the departure of God's presence from the temple in God in the book below, but as you read these two books, you see how important the temple was to the people and those in Judah. Why? As stated, it represented God's faithfulness, and His presence. God transferred, so to speak, his presence from the tabernacle to the temple. His presence was still there during the rule of the evil kings and the people's betrayal of the Mosaic Covenant. This means they did it to his face. Application, as sad as that was, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit of God within us. When we choose to sin, which we cannot blame on anyone, we too, 
sin in his face. I'm not saying this to bring a guilt trip on anyone. This is just as true for me as it is for you. But we need to understand the weight of sin, the price for sin, and the forgiveness of our sin. Every sin we commit put Jesus on the cross. That is the truth, and the reality of how sinful sin is. But God, in His grace, has forgiven us all our sins. 2 Corinthians 5 16-21, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their wrongdoings against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin, sin offering or sacrifice, in our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I love these verses. When we talk about our sin, we need to understand how evil it is. When we talk to others about sin and their personal sin, we need to talk about how evil it is and how offensive it is to God. But we cannot leave ourselves there, nor others there. We need to tell them the gospel and how in Christ, God forgives us all our sin and that in Him, we receive His righteousness, like a new pair of clean, pure white clothes. This is why we praise Him, worship Him, proclaim Him and live for Him. C. The Levites. The Levites were the priestly tribe in Israel. Both Moses and Aaron were descended from Levi, and the high priests came from Aaron's lineage, at least for a while. The Levites have a special place within the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles. This makes sense because the emphasis on the temple. The Levites had many jobs in connection to the temple. They were the priests, who offered the sacrifices. The high priest was a Levite and one time a year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would go into the Most Holy Place, or Holy of Holies, in the garments of a regular priest, and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant, to cover the sins of the people for one year, see Leviticus 23 for one reference. By the way, he did not have a rope tied around his leg just in case he was struck dead. I've heard various teachers say that, but it is neither biblically, nor historically accurate. The Levites also oversaw taking down and then setting up the tabernacle. In addition, some Levites carried the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when David put the Ark on the cart in 2 Samuel 6 rather than doing it the prescribed way? Uzzah died when he put his hand on the Ark. Later, see 1 Chronicles 15, David had the Levites carry it as was supposed to have been done. Their period of service was from 25 to 50 years old, Numbers 8 24-25. The Levites also became the lead teachers in Israel. King Jehoshaphat sent them out to the people to instruct and make judgments and act as officers, in 2 Chronicles 19 8-11. The Levites had no land, Numbers 18 20, but were given cities where they could live, grow crops, and retire, within various parts of the promised land. It seems that many of the Levites left the northern kingdom and traveled too, and joined with Judah, in the southern kingdom during the split of the kingdom. 2 Chronicles 11 13-14 alludes to this. They rejected God as others did but were restored as well. One example is under the rule of Hezekiah, they consecrated, or purified, themselves and were put in charge of cleansing and repairing the temple, 2 Chronicles 29 12-15. They became teachers once more, as 2 Chronicles 30-22 states. I will talk a bit more about them when we come to Ezra, and the return from Babylonian exile. d. The destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and the exile. The Babylonian exile of the southern kingdom was a major event in the history of Israel. As mentioned, it involved not only the kidnapping of people, among them the prophets Daniel and Ezekiel, but the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. I want to quote from an ancient Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus, or Josephus. 
He was born in 37 AD and died about 100 AD and is well known within Jewish culture and wrote much about their history. He writes about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the antiquities of the Jews. Now the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was very intent and earnest upon the siege of Jerusalem. He erected towers upon great banks of earth, and from them repelled those that stood upon the walls. He also made a great number of such banks round about the whole city, whose height was equal to those walls. Those within Jerusalem bore the Babylonian siege with courage and alacrity, for they were not discouraged, either by the famine, or by the pestilential distemper, but were of cheerful minds in the prosecution of the war. They endured this siege for eighteen months, until they were destroyed by the famine, and by the darts that the enemy threw at them from the towers. Now the city was taken on the ninth day of the fourth month, in the eleventh year of the reign of Zedekiah. When the city was taken about midnight, and the enemy's generals were entered into the temple, and when Zedekiah was sensible of it, he took his wives, and his children, and his captains, and his friends, and with them fled out of the city. He fled through the fortified ditch, and through the desert, and when certain of the deserters had informed the Babylonians of this, at break of day, they made haste to pursue after Zedekiah. They overtook the king not far from Jericho, and encompassed him about. And these things happened to Zedekiah, as Jeremiah and Ezekiel had foretold to him, that he should be caught, and brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and should speak to him face to face, and should see his eyes with his own eyes, and thus far did Jeremiah prophesy. But he was also made blind, and brought to Babylon, but did not see it, according to the prediction of Ezekiel. And now it was that the king of Babylon sent Nebuzaradan, the general of his army, to Jerusalem, to pillage the temple, who had it also in command to burn it in the royal palace. He was also to lay the city even with the ground, and to transplant the people into Babylon. Accordingly, Nebuzaradan came to Jerusalem in the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, and pillaged the temple, and carried out the vessels of God, both gold and silver, and particularly that large labor which Solomon dedicated, as also the pillars of brass, and their chapiters, with the golden tables and the candlesticks. When he had carried these temple treasures away, he set fire to its buildings in the fifth month, the first day of the month, in the eleventh year of the reign of Zedekiah, and in the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. He also burnt the palace, and overthrew the city. Now the temple was burnt four hundred and seventy years, six months, and ten days after it was built. Quoted from, https colon slash slash www.biblestudy.org slash biblerf slash antiquities of Jews slash Babylon destroys Jerusalem temple.html. This was a major battle. Imagine. Eighteen months. Again, we need to understand the history in which the Bible was written. I know this can be overwhelming, but here is a summary of those historical events. King Nebuchadnezzar ruled the Babylonian Empire from 605 to 562 BC as three attacks against Jerusalem are as follows. 605 BC This first attack marked the start of the slow, painful end to the Kingdom of Judah. It is mentioned in Daniel 1 1-2, 2 Kings 24-1 and Jeremiah 25. The attack was in response to Judah's King Jehoiakim, who had been a vassal of Babylon for three years, 2 Kings 24-1, rebelling against the empire. After Nebuchadnezzar overcomes Jerusalem. Takes captive the prophet Daniel and his friends, as well as others of noble birth, Jeremiah 27-20, and relocates them in Babylon. He also takes as booty only some of the vessels in the temple, 2 Chronicles 36-7. Jehoiakim is allowed to remain king. 597 BC Jerusalem is attacked a second time only three months into the reign of Judah's 18-year-old king Jehoiakim, 2 Kings 24-12-15, 2 Chronicles 36-9-10. The king is captured and taken as prisoner back to Babylon. The prophet Ezekiel, and others, are also taken into captivity, Ezekiel 1-1-3.
Zedekiah is installed by Nebuchadnezzar as the new puppet ruler of Judah, 2 Kings 24-25, Jeremiah 37 1. 586 BC Nebuchadnezzar initiates his third and final attack on Jerusalem, 2 Kings 24-25, Jeremiah 39, 52, 2 Chronicles 36. This time, he levels and burns the entire city. He also completely loots, levels and destroys with fire Jerusalem's famed temple. All the treasures found in God's house are taken out of the land and into Babylon. Judah's king Zedekiah is captured, has his eyes gouged out, and is taken into captivity. Almost all those left alive are also taken into captivity. Information from https colon slash slash www.biblestudy.org slash biblerf slash antiquities of Jews slash Babylon destroys Jerusalem temple.html. Those who were taken would live in exile for 70 years, as prophesied by Jeremiah, who was alive during that time. See Jeremiah 25 to 12 29 10, Daniel 9 1-2, and 2 Chronicles 36 21-22. The Jewish people lived as exiles for nearly two generations. Application, we, as Christians, live as exiles in a world that is not our home. Just as God told the Israelites how to live in exile, He tells us how to live here. Historical Context a warfare in ancient times. One thing we see a lot of in the historical books are the numerous battles. Please note, often scholarly works use the word Palestine for Israel. While this is unfortunate, it is important to know. What follows is an overview of warfare in the ancient Near East. Although Egyptian and Assyrian artists mainly describe their own armies and battles, their descriptions also enable us to trace the characteristics of the armies that they faced on the battlefield, including those of Syria and Palestine. The Assyrian monuments are an ideal source for the study of the battering ram, which became a most effective war machine. Basically it consisted of a wooden, box-like structure whose main function was to protect its operators, it had a turret from the ceiling with a rope hanging from it to which the thrusting beam was tied. The operative end of this wooden beam was made of metal and shaped like an axe head. The whole device moved on wheels. The biblical accounts of the many battles that took place between the ancient Israelites and their various enemies allow us to find out about systems of recruiting, the structure and organization of the army and various battle tactics. A good example here is the story of the conquest of Ai, which involved both deliberate deception and ambush, Josh. 8 1-24, the war against Sisera should be specially noted, Judge. 4, 5, since it sheds interesting light on the Israelite militia, which was made up of warriors from the individual tribes. Single combat was also practiced in the early period of the United Monarchy, as may be seen from the account of the duel between David and Goliath, 1 Sam. 17 4-7, especially concerning his weaver's beam javelin, which was probably the typical Aegean loop javelin, which enabled the weapon to be hurled to a greater distance. The introduction of chariot squadrons into the Israelite army occurred in the time of Solomon, 1 Kings 10:26. Their use developed so rapidly that in the 9th century BC, when the great battle between a coalition of the kings of Aram and Israel against Shalmaneser III took place at Karkar, Ahab, king of Israel, brought with him a greater number of chariots than any other member of the coalition. We know this from an inscription of Shalmaneser. The Siege of Lachish by Sennacherib. As related in the Bible, 2 kilograms. 1813-17, is complemented by Sennacherib's own reliefs, which describe the siege, the fortifications, the warriors and the weapons in great detail. The archaeological excavations of Lachish revealed the city destroyed by the Assyrians which was covered by a thick layer of ash. Other relics such as iron arrowheads that tell the story of the battle, were also unearthed. 1. This helps us understand the ancient world in which the biblical narrative took place. Remember, we are looking at history.
Unfortunately, we often overlook historical aspects when it comes to the Bible and search for something for ourselves. While we should apply the Bible, its truths and principles, don't neglect the historical context, and part of that context is warfare. For those who have been in combat, whether the armed forces, a police officer, or as a martial artist, battles are brutal, and warfare is horrible. We tend to think of our warfare today, but remember their technology, while the best at the time, was very different. Think of some of the movies you have seen where swords, shields, armor, and hand-to-hand combat took place. It was common for arms, legs, heads and more to be cut off in battle, to get struck by an arrow, or burned with fire. These things happened to real people. It was a brutal time to go into battle. Remember, David cut off Goliath's head. Be child sacrifice. One topic that has come up in the historical books is child sacrifice. 2 Chronicles 33 6, he, King Manasseh, also made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This abomination is also mentioned in 2 Chronicles 28 3, Jeremiah 32 35, and more. According to Leviticus 22, any Israelite or foreigner who lived in the land of Israel that gave their children to Moloch as a sacrifice were to be stoned to death. That is, under the Mosaic law, to offer a child as a sacrifice, common in the pagan nations, carried with it a death penalty. Occult practices and child sacrifice often went together. Many of the pagan statues like Moloch, were large statues with their arms outstretched so that the babies or young children could be placed upon them, with the fire kindled underneath. They offered them to appease the gods, for a blessing on crops, and more. Don't forget, Satan loves death. And if he can get someone to murder their children, he has gotten them to go beyond what is sane or moral. It is one of the lowest and most debased things that any culture can do. Application This may seem foreign to us, but in America and around the world, the unborn, the most vulnerable people in the world are sacrificed on the altar of convenience before they are given a chance to live outside the womb. Abortion is murder. We will be held accountable for this. Is there forgiveness for those who commit it? Yes. I know someone who had an abortion and later came to Christ. She was completely forgiven. This is not a political issue, but an ethical and spiritual issue that is being waged in our world, our country and in the church. The church must stand up against this evil, but we must also help those who are struggling. Thankfully, many churches and organizations help women who are struggling with their pregnancy. Pro-life crisis pregnancy centers are scattered around the world, and many are Christian-based, and provide for women who choose life. If you have gotten an abortion, or been connected to one, then you can be forgiven. If you have put your faith in Christ, then you are forgiven. If you know a girl or woman who is wondering what to do about her pregnancy, then help her and connect her with a good church and groups that can support her. God in the Books Though it is mentioned in Ezekiel 8-11, the presence of God, left the temple prior to its destruction. Ezekiel had that vision about 592 BC, though the destruction of the temple was in 586 BC. This departure of God's glory and presence was a tragedy. You can read through those chapters and see how, step by step, God leaves the temple. Also, he was involved just like he was in 1 and 2 Kings, which I won't reiterate here. But the exile brings up a question, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? No one knows. There are various theories in academia, and myth and more. One theory is that it is in Ethiopia. Another says that it is contained in the catacombs beneath Golgotha. Another says it was destroyed. The Bible does not tell us what happened to the Ark either prior to the destruction of the Temple or at the destruction of the Temple. Unless you are Indiana Jones, you don't know either. Connection with Messiah and New Testament 
I've previously addressed the importance of the tribe of Judah, and want to connect that with the New Testament. Matthew 1 1-17 gives the genealogy of Jesus from David to Joseph. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah and is a descendant of King David. This means Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David and has the authority and ability to rule the nation. The Gospel of Matthew is the Gospel of the King. In it, there is a focus on Christ as the one who came to be King of the Jews. The Beatitudes were the offer of the Kingdom to the Jewish people and revealed what it will be like in the Kingdom. They rejected Him as King, though upon His return, the remnant will confess Him as Lord, Saviour, and King. Revelation 5 5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. It's all about Jesus. Next is the synagogue. While there is debate as to when and where the synagogues began, most scholars state they began while Judah was in captivity. Some even say Ezekiel began them, because he was a priest, Ezekiel 1-3, and was taken to Babylon. The Jewish captives in Babylon did not have a temple or an altar, but they longed for communion with God. This longing is clearly reflected in Psalm 137 and Daniel 9. It was only natural for them to meet in local groups for prayer and the reading of the Scriptures. When the Jews returned to their land, Ezra the scribe promoted the reading of the law and prayer, Nehemiah 8. But Zerubbabel had rebuilt the temple, giving the Palestinian Jews a worship center. Many Jews, however, lived in Persia. And others had fled to many countries. By about 300 BC a large community of Jews lived in Alexandria, Egypt. A marble slab found near Alexandria bears an inscription dedicating a synagogue to Ptolemy III, Eurgetes, who ruled Egypt from 246 to 221 BC, and his queen Berenice. This is the first solid evidence of a true synagogue. Within Palestine one of the oldest known synagogues is the one uncovered on Masada near the Dead Sea, built in the 1st century BC. In Jesus' day synagogues were common even in the villages. They must have been well established with the customary officials and order of worship, Luke 4 14-30, Paul found synagogues in cities throughout the Roman Empire, Acts 9-2, Damascus, 13-5, Salamis, 13-14, Antioch in Pisidia, 14-1, Iconium, 17-1, Thessalonica, 17-10, Berea, 17-16-17, Athens, 19-1, 8, Ephesus. This shows that the synagogue had existed for a long time. 2. While I will not consider this an assignment, for those who want to study a bit more regarding the curse of Jeconia you can read this article, which gives a good and short summary with three possibilities. The Curse of Jeconia, https colon slash slash www.goquestions.org slash curse of jeconia.html. Dash. 1. Negev, A. 1990. In the Archaeological Encyclopedia of the Holy Land, 3rd ed. Prentice Hall Press. Logos Bible Software. 2. Youngblood, R. F. Bruce, F. F. and Harrison, R. K. Thomas Nelson Publishers, eds. 1995. In Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Thomas Nelson Incorporated, Logos Bible Software.